in Genesis, the creation of all things is recorded for us in the space of two chapters. The fall of man in the garden, the fall of man in Eden, and then the fall of man in the world is recorded for us in the space of three chapters. The flood narrative is four chapters. The record of the nations in Babel is two chapters. Abraham's narrative is 13 chapters. Isaac's is only two. Jacob's is 10. And Joseph's is 14 chapters. It's the longest narrative in Genesis. And you may have noticed that it's slowing down. It's almost like this novel. It's, it's giving us a lot of detail in these events, almost as if history is slowing down. And we might ask ourselves, why? Why is this happening? Well, all of Genesis is important, but I believe this slowing down is doing a few things. It draws our attention to it. It's like highlighting it. It focuses our attention on what's happening. It's also slowing down prior to the climax. So again, it's another kind of arrow saying, wait for what's coming. <clears throat> and the climax of Genesis is the resolution of all the problems that we've seen in Genesis. And the problems we've seen in Genesis are threefold. Just as they're threefold in ge geography, where you have the garden in Eden, you have the Eden in, and you have, you have Eden and you have the world. The problems in Genesis are relational and they are sins against God. Uh, Adam sinning against God by violating his word, sins against the brother, Cain killing Abel, and sins against the outsider, the intermarriage in the antediluvian world. And these three problems, sins against God, sins against brother, sins against the foreigner, are resolved at the end uh, of, of Genesis. And so that's another thing that's, that's being shown here. And they're resolved in the temporal relationships that we see in Jacob's family uh, as well. But all three of these areas are pointing to ultimate resolution, uh, which are uh, seen in the figures of death and resurrection, which are just bursting at the seams uh, at every uh, turn here. The Christological typology is fractally ubiquitous uh, throughout this kind of slow motion history. And uh, we see that here again uh, in this passage. We begin with Jacob's household, and they are once again uh, facing starvation uh, due to the severity of the famine. They've run out of provisions from their first expedition to Egypt, and Jacob orders his sons to return, and he says, buy a little food. And I don't know why it says, I don't know why it has that detail, a little food. If anybody has any thoughts on that, uh, I'd be interested in kind of unwrapping that enigma. Um, but he says, go buy us a little food, almost like it's like go down to the marketplace and buy us a little something, which, of course, it's not a little it's not a little trip. It's not a it's they're on the brink of starvation. It's a big deal. They need a lot of food. <clears throat> but uh, in any case, uh, Matthew Henry draws a, a very simple, but I think a very good spiritual application here. Uh, he, he says, if we should ever know what a famine of the word means, let us not think it much to travel as far for spiritual food as they did for corporal food. Uh, bread is a symbol uh, of the word of God, and uh, Jacob's family is lacking bread, and so they go to where there is bread. We in 2023 America are living in a time that we could call a famine of the word. And so this means we need to go to where there's food. We need to go to where there's bread where the word of God is uh, preached and obeyed. And this may be a hard thing to do. <clears throat> it may require dying to self and a willingness to give up things that are precious to us. And we are going to see that here with Benjamin, Judah, and Jacob. <clears throat> Jacob, we see again as the patriarch of the family. He's giving orders to his sons. 
But instead of Reuben as the spokesperson, or we might say the mediator or the intercessor of the brothers, who do we see? Judah. Judah is the intercessor to the father for the brothers here. Judah reminds his father about the necessity of bringing Benjamin if they're to acquire more food in Egypt. <clears throat> and this interaction shows us again that the relationship between the father and the sons are still strained. What does Jacob say? He says, why did you deal so wrongfully with me to tell this man about Benjamin? That word wrongfully is... Uh, Ra'ah, it's evil, it's wicked. Why did you deal so wickedly with me? You, why did you do this wicked thing to me? The father, his heart's not towards his sons, and he suspects that their heart isn't towards them. There's a strained relationship here between the father and the son. But Judah responds reasonably, and I would argue truthfully. <clears throat> his recounting doesn't match exactly what we see in the conversations recorded for us previously. Uh, or what they said to him when they, what, what the brothers said to Jacob upon their return. Because what we see in those exchanges is that they just volunteer the information. It does look like a needless volunteering of the information, at least as it's recording. But I don't think Judah is lying. I think he's giving us more information on what the, con the nature of the conversation was. That's how I would take this. Um, uh, but that is uh, speculation. <clears throat> but... We see that Judah is, he's saying, he, he inquired about these things, and we just, we just answered him truthfully. How could we have known what his response was going to be? And so Judah is kind of this uh, advocate. He's this mediator. He's, we might even say he's, he's wrestling almost with Jacob. He's becoming like Jacob. He's wrestling with the father. <clears throat> and then he does this other thing. Uh, if we take a step back, most of the older brothers in Genesis are at variance with their younger brother or they kill their, their younger brother. But Judah does something that the older brothers in Genesis don't do. And what he does is he offers himself for his younger brother. We start to see this resolution occur with this problem that we've seen all throughout Genesis. <clears throat> And this is in contrast to Reuben. Remember, Reuben tried to protect Joseph at Dothan, the firstborn. <clears throat> firstborn couldn't save him. He tried to protect Simeon uh, when, they, when they came back. He couldn't, he couldn't save him. He offered his sons. But Judah is offering himself. <clears throat> and Judah wins over his uh, father. He says, I will be surety. Uh, in the wisdom literature, uh, he's, he's pledging himself uh, for the life of Benjamin. In the wisdom literature, surety is described as a dangerous thing. If you pledge yourself a surety, it's going to cost you your life. It's a very dangerous act to do. <clears throat> but that's what Judah is doing. He says, if I don't bring ben uh, Benjamin back and set him before you, may I bear the blame forever. And that's a, that's a Christ-like thing that he's doing. He's, it's as if he's taking a curse upon himself for the sake uh, of another. He's willing to die uh, for his people. And he says that. He says that we may live and not die, uh, uh, you and me and all of the little ones. He's thinking about his people. And so he's willing to lay down his life so that his people can live. <clears throat> and this is significant. Judah is doing this Christ-like uh, laying down of his life. And it's from Judah whom the Christ comes. At the end of Genesis, Jacob gives Judah the blessing. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. And it's from Judah that we get David, and then it's from David that we get Christ. And so the Christ isn't going to come from Joseph, although Joseph is a prominent 
Christ figure, it's going to come from Judah. And we start to see Judah acting as the Christ figure here. He offers himself in a type of death. And what this teaches us is that death is necessary for salvation. And this is the first of three. We're going to see uh, this also with uh, Jacob and then also uh, with um, Benjamin. Jacob also offers himself. He accepts his own death. He says, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. And if we know that he talked about his gray hair going down to Sheol, if Benjamin was taken away from him. So he's, he's accepted that he's, he's willing to die. If Benjamin doesn't come back, he's, he gives, he lets Benjamin go. He's willing to accept his bereavement. He's willing to accept his death. But I don't think it's a, it's a despairing resignation uh, that he says here. When he says, I am, uh, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. We see a similar phrase in Esther where it's almost a similar situation. In Esther, God's people are about to die. They're about to be exterminated. And Esther um, hatches a plan to save them. And she also offers herself. She's willing to die. And she says something similar. She says this. Uh, she says, go gather, uh, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this, will, when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mm -hmm. And we see a similar kind of, these are acts of faith. This is an act of faith that Esther did. I think there's a similar thing going on here with Jacob. And Esther doesn't die. Esther lives and the people live. She saves the people. And it's the same thing with Jacob. Jacob doesn't die. Uh, he lives and uh, the people live. Uh, no, Jacob. I'm talking about Jacob here. Jacob is, uh, 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 Judah doesn't die either. Yeah. <clears throat> so what we take away from this is if you want to save your people, you have to be willing to die. That's how you save your people. If you're willing to give up yourself. Jacob offers, um, so he's offering himself by offering his son. These things are intrinsically connected. And then he offers this prayer. He offers, offers this prayer to God, which is another reason I don't think that this is kind of um, despairing resignation. The prayer is that God would give his son's mercy before the king. And um, John Calvin says this. He says, in the form of his supplication, Jacob regarded the hearts of men as subject to the will of God. When we have to deal with men, we too often stop looking to the Lord because we do not sufficiently acknowledge him as the secret ruler of their hearts. And so we see, we see Jacob acting in faith here, continuing as a, as a prayerful man. What does Proverbs 21 say? What proverb applies to this situation, this prayer? The heart of the king is like water in the hands of the Lord. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep, the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. It's like rivers of water, and he turns it where he wants. Yep, very good. So Jacob is appealing to God, who is sovereign over the hearts of men, even the hearts of the ruler of nations. Jacob prays, may God Almighty grant mercy. God Almighty. He's petitioning God Almighty. In Hebrew, that's El Shaddai. And that, that word has, uh, that, that uh, name, uh, attribution uh, of God has appeared already for us in Genesis uh, three or four times. Uh, it appears when God comes to Abraham in Genesis 17, to reestablish the covenant with him. He says, you're going to be fruitful, but you need to circumcise yourself, which is another form of offering your son. Jacob's offering his son, 
circumcision is a symbolic offering of your children to God. He says, I'm going to make you fruitful, but you know that member that, that is used to be fruitful, I want you to cut a part of it off. And that is this strange but symbolic way of giving your children over to the Lord, trusting that he's the one who's going to give you the fruit. Uh, El Shaddai is invoked by Isaac when he sends Jacob off to Laban, another giving of the son. He says, uh, may God Almighty bless you. And then he sends Jacob away to Laban. Uh, God refers to himself as El Shaddai when he appears to Jacob upon uh, when Jacob's return, uh, uh, return trip to Bethel. So Jacob and, and, and God says, I am God Almighty, I am El Shaddai, and I'm going to make you fruitful. I'm going to give you all these things, another reestablishment of the covenant. So now Jacob is invoking that name again when he is praying this prayer as he sends off his son. And so he's saying, the God of covenant, the God who keeps his promises, El Shaddai, may you grant mercy uh, to my sons in, in front of the king. Abraham had to give up his son, and he receives him back. Isaac had to give up his son, and he received him back. And now Jacob is having to give up his son, and he's going to receive him back. And then the third kind of offering here is Benjamin. Benjamin himself. Benjamin offers himself. And this is similar. We, we might think of this as another binding of Isaac. Isaac offers himself. Uh, uh, and I think that uh, on Mount Moriah which is, of course, rich in Calvary typology. And I think that this is also rich in Calvary typology, though it's a little bit more subtle. Um, and let me suggest this is how we see this here with Benjamin. Judah says to Jacob that they wouldn't see the man's face if their brother wasn't with them. Later in the story, we're told that Joseph has become like a father to Pharaoh. We already know that Pharaoh is a figure of Christ. He's a figure of God. And here I think he's a figure of the Father. They're having to appear before God the Father in a type. And they're not going to be able to see the face of the Father of God Almighty if their brother isn't offered, if the brother doesn't come. And this concept of seeing God's face is, it's something that's prominent in Scripture. Remember we, uh, we sang Psalm 88 in Lent? What do we say there? We mentioned God's face there. What do we say there? This is a song of despair, or this is a dark song. This is a song where uh, it's questioning, uh, or it's, 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 it's struggling with the feeling of the absence of God, being in a dark place. And how is that described? Exactly. Why do you hide your face from me? There's another, uh, so it says, no one has seen the face of God. It's the only God that's revealed him. Okay. The face won't be revealed unless the father Jacob sends the son Benjamin. Good. Yes, exactly. That, that ties into this whole tapestry. And we see even the, uh, the priestly blessing that I'll give here at the end of the service that the, the, the Levites would give. What do they say? What's the priestly blessing there that involves the face of God? Right, right. May God's face shine upon you. This is a form of favor, of God's favor on you. And then uh, Paul, what does he say? He says, we, are, we will see God face to face. For now we see in a mere dimly, but then face to face. He's talking about resurrection, glory, and eternity. In eternity, we will behold God face to face. Last, last question here. In theological terms, what is this called? Does anybody know? 
beholding the face of God for eternity. Being at a Catholic university, you should know this. <laughs> it's the beatific vision. This is something that Thomas Aquinas talks about. The beatific means to make happy or to be blessed, but it's, it's more rooted in to make happy. Thomas Aquinas teaches us that the end for which man was created is happiness. And the only way that happiness can be attained is by beholding the face of God. And that comes by way of Calvary. And that is what uh, the beatific uh, vision is. And that is what this concept uh, is here. The brothers will not see Joseph's face without Benjamin. Also in this discourse between Judah and Jacob, Benjamin is referred to as brother seven times and then Benjamin once. So we have eight references to Benjamin, the brother. It's constantly brother, 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 Benjamin. And eight, of course, is? Complete creation. Resurrection. Yeah. New creation. Right. Yeah. New creation. It's new covenant. Uh, the, uh, Jesus, Jesus was raised on the eighth day. He was raised on the first day, which is the eighth day. It's a new creation. That's what the number, the, uh, uh, the circumcision is on the eighth day. These are things pointing to the new covenant. And so I think that there's this, I think that there's this reference to the new covenant here with Benjamin. The world that they're currently in was created on the eighth day, or through eight. So uh, the eight for the Noah's flood, saved by eight people, a new creation, new world, the flood, the old world perished. The world that they're currently in was saved by eight. Right. Yes. Good. So I think that just as uh, Isaac was a figure of Christ, Benjamin is also a, a figure of Christ who was raised. He was our, he's our brother. He's not a, Christ is not ashamed to call us our brother. He's our brother who was raised on the eighth day. And uh, I think that the, this likeness is being uh, given here. Also, as far as the beatific vision typology, later in the chapter, Joseph washes his face. And I think this figures into this, but we'll explore that uh, next time. All right. Um, Jacob orders his sons to bring gifts for the king. Of course, this is kind of obvious. He's, uh, he's sending gifts to a man um, who essentially has uh, his life and the life of his sons in his hands, which is a similar situation Jacob found himself in with Esau, which was another rich Calvary typology. He thought death was coming. Esau was the figure of death, and he offers these gifts uh, perhaps in an attempt to assuage him and to be at peace. And it ends with them at peace, brothers at peace. And it's a similar thing here. He's sending forward these gifts uh, with a man who has the life of his sons in his hands, the life of his people in his hands. And it's going to end with reconciliation between not only brothers, but also sons and, father, and a father. Um, any thoughts on uh, the significance of the gifts? There's, there's a few things here. He, he said something about uh, uh, spices or something, right? Yeah. And then money, so gold, frankincense, but uh, the myrrh is the one that not. Yeah, myrrh's in here as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 exactly. I just missed it then. Right, right. So these, these are gifts that are, are brought by um, the, the first one we see, well, I'm sure there's more, but an, uh, a prominent one, the Queen of Sheba brings similar gifts like these to Solomon. And then we see the Magi bring similar gifts to the one greater than Solomon, Christ, the king. Uh, and all of these gifts, the, the myrrh, these spices, and then uh, uh, what's the other one? The balm. These all have 
they have, they have priestly, prophetic, and kingly significance to them. And the balm is, uh, is something that heals. Uh, uh, the incense is something that a priest is going to use. And, and then, you know, the, the spice is something that enhances food. And kings, kings feed the people. Uh, priests feed the people, too, as well. But uh, so um, there's these, these things going on here. They're, they're bringing gifts for the king, and this points to Christ the king. In addition, we have pistachios, almonds, and honey. And perhaps uh, there's some kind of uh, uh, foreshadowing of the promised land here. The promised land as the land flowing with milk and honey. We, we see that pop up here. Yeah. Not almond milk. Not almond milk. No, 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 no. Not almond milk. <laughs> um, and then we're told that these are the best fruits that they, that they had to offer. So they're offering a good Sacrifice, in a sense. These are good gifts. And if we count the money in here, it's a sevenfold gift. So it's a complete gift that they're giving. And this, again, nestling it in with the, the Calvary typology. <clears throat> Jacob orders them to take double the money. He says, take double the money and the money uh, that, that you received back. So if we, you could read it as he's saying, bring three times the amount. Um, uh, rather than uh, uh, two times the amount. But in any case, he says, uh, perhaps it was an oversight. Jacob gives the Egyptians the benefit of the doubt, which is a mark of charity, rather than giving a kind of evil suspicion. And then by doubling the money, or perhaps tripling it, um, he's offering a form of restitution. Uh, if the brothers are suspected of stealing the money, Jacob is ensuring that things are made right. The law prescribes various amounts of restitution. Leviticus 6 uh, requires 100% restitution for stolen property plus one-fifth of its value. Um, and then also a trespass offering to the Lord through the priest. Exodus 22 says that if a man steals an ox and it's found with him alive, which is there's different prescriptions if it's dead or, or, or sold, uh, he has to pay back double. And then Zacchaeus resolves to pay back anybody he cheated four times as much, um, the amount that he cheated. So here Jacob is sending a 300% restitution in a situation where he suspects an oversight. Some translations say a mistake. And it's, the, it's, it's a mistake. of It's the sins of others. He's offering, he's making an offering for the sins of others, the mistake of others, which again uh, factors into this atonement motif so prominent in the passage. <clears throat> and just a few more things here. Um, in our passage, Judah and Jacob always refer to Joseph as the man. Um, Ju uh, Jacob's uh, prayer, he says, May God Almighty give you mercy before the man. Judah's, Judah says, How could we have known what the man was going to ask us? It's constantly the man. They don't know it's Joseph. It's just the man, the man, the man, the man. In Hebrew, that's, that's Esh. Or, or oh, ish, ash is fire, uh, ish is man. And I think that this has, um, I think that this has kind of an illusion. I think what it brings to mind is, th is the first man, which is Adam. And then that, of course, has double reference to the second man, who is Christ. And when is that word ish first brought into our uh, minds in scripture in Genesis all throughout it's in the creation narrative all throughout the creation narrative Adam is called Adam he's he's uh, as James Jordan it, it's a man of the earth or James Jordan would call him he's a dirt bag he's the dirt bag 
God breathes life into him. Then he, then he puts him into this figurative death. He puts him to sleep. He takes his rib out. He builds a bride. And he says, she will be woman, Isha, because she came from man, Ish. Um, and I think that this is something that is prominent here. Whenever you see an Ish, there's going to be an Isha. There's, whenever there's the man, there's a woman. And that's what I think is happening here. If Joseph is the man, I would say Israel, as we see later, is the woman. God is building his bride. He's building a people for himself. And just as Adam was put to death, and then we see the formation of the bride, we start to see death here with God's people. They are put through trial. They are put through suffering. They are put to death. And God is forming his people. And that is a hard process. That's a difficult process because dying um, isn't easy. Jacob is placed in such a desperate situation that he, f he finally gives up Benjamin. It's not something that he wants to do, but he does it. Often God will put us in places that will strongly compel us to do things that we don't want to do. And this is a favor of God on us. Amen. To let go of things that we want to hold on to. Uh, to give things up that we ought to give up. God will... God will strongly suggest we do these kinds of things. Amen. John Calvin says this. He says, the Lord may press us by necessity of circumstance to do things contrary to our own inclinations. Thus, Jacob sent away his son as if he were handing him over to death. But death isn't the end game for God. The end game is life and life more abundantly. And so what we may perceive as loss or risky is none of those things, but it is God orchestrating your redemption, your sanctification, your reconciliation, all of these things. That's the end game for which God is sovereignly orchestrating all of these things. Let's pray. When Christ was in the garden during his passion, he asked the Father to take away the cup he was about to drink, but he subordinated his will to the will of the Father. He offered himself up to die. The son was willing to give up his life. The father was willing to give up his son. And in this, by the spirit of holiness, Christ receives his own life back. And the father receives his son back at his right hand in glory and in power. And what this teaches us is the same thing it taught to Jacob, it taught to Judah, and it taught to Benjamin. That sacrifice saves. So the charge is to offer yourself, to love your life not unto death like the early Christians to be, as St. Paul says, living sacrifices, pleasing and holy to God, willing to give up what the Lord has called you to give so that you may live as he has called you to live. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.